Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Daily Objective, where we bring you the practical philosophy of objectivism and apply it to everyday life. And, and now we've been applying it to the war in Gaza, which is in its 135th day. Today, uh, I'm very honored to have your own Brooke as a guest here, and we're going to be talking about why the left hates the Jews. Um, this is a very curious phenomenon, um, and I'm sure you as an objectivist have a unique perspective about it. It's something I've noticed. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit. I'll start with the fundamental question. Why does the left hate the Jews? And and I think it's a bewildering question to a large extent because the left historically has not hated the Jews, at least the left historically supported the Jews and most Jews being leftist. So it, it uh, you know, the left in Europe, the left in America is typically being uh, uh, very anti-anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism generally is being viewed as a phenomenon of the right, a phenomenon of fascism. Uh, but there's always been an undercurrent, which we can get to. Uh, but I think the the the, the big uh, the main reason today that the left hates the Jews is that the Jews today are successful. Um, they have done phenomenally well. You know, you can take any kind of group and. I don't like these kind of groupings. I don't, it's not even clear to me how you define Jew, but however the culture chooses to define who's Jewish uh, or however Jews choose to define it, they've been phenomenally successful. I mean, look at the Nobel Prizes. It's it's completely disproportionate to, to how many Jews there are on the planet. Look at, at you know, earnings, wealth, uh, just a achievement pretty much in, in, uh, in every intellectual field out there Jews dominate the universities again in proportion to to how many how many there are in the world and they dominate almost every intellectual movement uh that that's out there I mean objectivism is is a good example uh of that of the the dominance kind of of, of the number of Jews in uh, leadership or intellectual positions so I think it's a success uh, you know one example of this is Israel uh, it, it used to be before 1967, it, it, the left loved Israel. Israel was like, you know, their favorite place, particularly European left. And, and they loved Israel because Israel was this place where there were these poor, pathetic Jews who were somehow surviving, but they were basically these Holocaust survivors and, and altruism, the dominant moral philosophy out there tells you, right, if somebody's suffering, if somebody's in pain, if somebody's doing not so well, then, yeah, they're probably good guys. <laughs> and if they're successful, they're probably the bad guys. And it's, it's 1967, when Israel won this major victory in the Six-Day War and just crushed these Arab armies in six days, that's why it's called the Six-Day War, the European mentality completely flipped. It's like all these people who felt sorry for the Jews and therefore, you know, loved them. Now, wait a minute, these Jews are kind of strong and powerful and they just won a war. They must be the bad guys by definition. That's what altruism teaches us. Who are the, who, who's suffering? Who's in pain? Oh, it's the Palestinians. We'll, we'll love them. And America, American left didn't follow quite, a, quite along that path, but with the rise of woke, and was the rise of intersectionality. Uh, the American left today is probably at the forefront of this idea of victim, victimizer, 
and and segregating the world into victims and victimizer, victims good, victimizer bad, Jews successful, therefore must be the victimizer, therefore bad. Uh, so I think that is the ethical source of it. I mean, there are all kinds of historical reasons, and uh, we can talk about those. I mean, Karl Marx was an anti-Semite, and that, I'm sure, filtered through into, into communism in various ways. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh invariably when i see a raging anti-semite on x and there just seems to be so many of them on x um i look at their profiles um just like i guess i would look at a car accident if i'm passing it by and i there's always uh, there's always one thing in there socialist there's always anti-capitalist always the same always the same vibe now how how do you what's is there a deeper cause for this this conflict narrative is there a deeper cause for this hatred of success and this and this elevation of people who are victims to some type of moral status that they don't deserve that you think needs to be mentioned here well certainly altruism is as i said earlier altruism drives the idea if you if you if you if you think about kant's uh when he discusses certain issues about ethics he talks about you know if you meet somebody who's happy and successful you should be suspicious because they they were probably a little selfish you don't get to be successful and happy unless you've been thinking about yourself and therefore that's morally offensive morally bad we should dismiss it so there's certainly that moral attitude of altruism that says that success is associated with selfishness uh, and, and and that permeates throughout all of these kind of discussions so altruism certainly and then of course, as the moral ideal of the modern left, you get egalitarianism. Egalitarianism now is uh, the, the moral ideal, which means equality, not equality of rights, but equality of outcome. Uh, and in order to achieve equality of outcome, it means suppressing ability and, and you know, taking, you know, it goes back to Marx, right? From those uh, according to their ability to those according to their need, and the egalitarianism take this very seriously. If you have something, ability, uh, money, wealth, anything, they'll take it from you and give it to those who don't have it. Uh, they want to oppress those who have not been oppressed in order to achieve this egalitarian uh, model. So a lot of this boils down to ethics and just our attitude towards ethics, altruism, egalitarianism. Uh, and, uh, and, and if you go deeper than that, then... It's a rejection of free will. It's a rejection of the idea that you create who you are. It's a rejection of the idea that your achievement, your success are yours because you made the choices uh, that you did. You achieved what you achieved. So it's a deterministic, it's deterministic uh, and it, so it's anti-free will and it's anti-self-interest and it's anti ability, anti-achievement, and uh, and pro-egalitarianism, pro-equality of uh, of outcome. You know, what blows my mind is, the, the, I guess about 10 or 15 years ago, a, a, a word that I kept hearing over and over and again with when it was, when it came down to a conflict between the left and the right, was the left always saying that the right wasn't nuanced, and that the things that 
were happening in the world were nuanced and nuance was the big term that they use. And yet everything you described to me here is so doggone simplistic. It's unbelievable how unnuanced it is. What happened? I mean, at one time, Rand respected the left, you know, and nuance could have probably applied to them in the 50s Mm -hmm. or 60s. But what's what's happened? Well, really, what Rand describes as the new left, as as the phenomenon of the 1960s, uh, you know, was in the 60s, 70s, 80s was kind of a, it was really a blimp. It it, kind of came and with the victory of Nixon over McCarthy in in, um, 1972, it almost disappeared, right? It was just, everybody became... You remember the the 1980s with the me generation, the uh, the uh, uh, and it was it was everybody was I think all those hippies who went into business or went to get a life actually devoted themselves to bettering themselves and and to achieving something. But what was neglected was the fact that many of those hippies from the 1960s, many of those new left, stayed at the universities. They got PhDs. And they became the teachers. So come late 70s, early 80s, they are starting to be the dominant intellectuals at the universities. They are they are the thinkers, uh, which is a the, the opposite of thinkers, but but they are the people who, who kind of shape the culture. And and uh, what we're seeing today is a consequence of that. And what they brought to the forefront is everything Iron Man talked about. It was complete moral relativism. It was a complete rejection of reason and an embrace of emotionalism and and really a a complete rejection of a metaphysics of reality. And what they embraced, they they, they found these French philosophers that then they worked off of, uh, really the postmodern philosophers of of, uh, the middle part of the 20th century. And they took those ideas and ran with them. And much of what we have today, the, the, the all this post-colonialism and, uh, a, a, you know, what is it, uh, anti-racism, which is not really anti-racism, it's really racism. Uh, the You know, there's a whole gamut, the, the whole identitarian movement that is, exists today on the left is all kind of coming out of the, the writing and teaching of those 60 generation turned professors who embraced uh, some form of postmodernism, uh, some form of this emotionalism and complete rejection of reason, and this you know altruism and egalitarianism, and uh, and what we're seeing today is the fruits of that work that they did. They are, yeah, I just read Yasha Monk has a, a book called something with identitarianism in the title, which is very good as just a summary of the intellectual movement. And they are key players, uh, and and they're all at the top universities. They all went to, you know, they all graduated and and got jobs at the top universities. And they have been writing and advocating for these kind of, yeah, uh, non, you know, nuance assumes reason. Nuance assumes we have to look at the facts. We need evidence. We need to really think this through. But facts, evidence, and thinking it through is not part of their agenda. They take real issues and they distort and pervert them. They take real issues like racism or real issues like certain conflicts or certain challenges. And then they distort and pervert them uh, to support their kind of their irrational egalitarian agenda that, that drives them. It really, it really is just a new left 
if you can call it maturing, I don't think I don't think that's the right term, but you know, getting older and getting more this is the the new left becoming the establishment. Whereas they were anti-establishment mm. in the 60s, now they are the establishment. And this is the consequence. And that uh, you know, that thoughtful left that was wrong, but at least embraced reason and thinking things through has basically uh, died out. I mean, part of the sad things that I think both of us I notice is that the same irrationality and moral relativism and all this stuff has now infected the right. So now you have the, the, this phenomenon on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it is really pathetic. Uh, you know, it, Marx claimed to have a scientific approach. We we know it's not scientific and so on. But he had a certain philosophy. He had certain ideas, principles on which he built. And there's a whole system there that's all rotten. But it's a system. Today, there's, there's nothing. It's just, it really is, um, uh, you know, philosoph philosophically uh, pathetic. It, it, it's, it's much worse. In that sense, it's much worse than Marx. And those Marxists of the 50s and 60s, they believed, for example, in human progress. They believed that, you know, it was it was uh, industrialization was good and we should we should master nature and we should get richer. They just believed you should then redistribute the wealth and all kinds of other silly, you know, evil things. But this generation doesn't want progress. They don't want achievement. They don't believe in achievement. They don't believe in ability. They, they don't care about the proletariat. They don't care about anybody. They, they care about race and ethnicity, but even there, they care about them only in a sense that they want to knock people down, particularly if they have any kind of ability. Just look at how they treat blacks who happen to be successful. They go after them oh, yeah. worse than they go after anybody who's white. There's a great little piece on Glenn Lurie that you did the other day, too, that oh, yeah. was... It filled me with fire to hear his passion about how degrading... How degrading the uh, uh, the phenomenon is of um, the quota system. Wait, I, I want to ask you something because this 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 phenomenon it's sort of related, but it, it it's very disturbing to me. Um, how do you explain guys like Finkel Finkelstein, who are, who are who's who's like intellectual reputation has now been resurrected from the dead by pro Hamas yeah. people? Because he's a Jew who had parents in the Holocaust, and somehow that makes his is poison relevant? And, and you know, I mean, how do you explain a character like that? Well, I mean, he has a, a man who hates himself, uh, who, who uh, is, you know, is an evader, who has figured out that he's got a niche, a unique niche, where uh, <laughs> he can he can be prominent. You know, it's like a Ellsworth, Ellsworth Tui or something. Like, you know, he can he can be the leading voice. Um, and and he plays it, you know, he knows exactly what he's doing. So he plays his parents are Holocaust survivors. He plays, I am Jewish and look at me. And and uh, and that gives him prominence and he knows it. So he keeps on playing that. I mean, he's a liar. Mm -hmm. He's a defader and, and, a, and a deceiver. And if you look at, I mean, but there's a whole school of them. There's a school of historians in Israel called the post-Zionists. And... Who basically uh, are revisionist historians who went back and rewrote Israeli history to make Israel the bad guys and the Palestinians the good guys, and they are very prominent, particularly among those who love Hamas, and uh, they dominated the history department in Israel for a while. Benny Morris, 
who today is a defender of Israel, used to be one of them. And he had a change of heart during the Second Intifada. I don't think he ever quite went back and rewrote his books and 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 you know and and uh, and challenged himself to uh, to actually take out all the lies that he told in the past. But today, at least, he's defending he's defending Israel. But I think it from ultimately from a position of weakness because he has he has a history of of kind of this revisionist history which is not quite right which he tries to uh, tries to whitewash so yeah i mean there are a lot of people who who, who have figured out that this is a path to glory or to fame or however we want to call it and and, and they're, they're going to write it and they're going to exploit it as much as they can if you is certainly one of them but there's a number of this ilan pape there's a there's a bunch of these israelis never mind just jews but israelis who are involved in this and and it shouldn't surprise us i mean uh, how many how many economists do we know who are marxists or uh, you know uh, or people who hate america even though they live here and they and they enjoy the freedoms how many how many america hating uh, right now america hating uh, right wingers libertarians leftists are there while hate this country while enjoying uh, the, the freedoms that it still has so it's, uh, you know, uh, lying to oneself and being uh, evading and evading is something that human beings, sadly, uh, are very good at doing. And it seems that we still live in a world, even post-Rand, post-Ayn Rand, where people are still engaged in this. And the only plus side of this is you get a sense that they all suffer the consequences. They all live miserable lives, I think. So at, at least we have some semblance of justice. <laughs> I would certainly hope that's true. It seems it seems to be true from the outside. But uh, I, go ahead. I, I, I do want to say something about Karl Marx because it, it is connected to this idea of leftist hating Jews. Because Karl Marx wrote a famous essay, really his first uh, essay that he that was noteworthy that that he that he received acclaim for uh, before he wrote uh, his famous books. He wrote a, an essay called "On the Jewish Question," which was at the time mm -hmm. Europe a question: what What do we do about the Jews? It, you know, it was a real question in Europe. Do we assimilate them? Do allow Do we allow them to assimilate into our societies? What about the Jews who refuse to assimilate? Do we keep them in the ghettos? What do we do about the Jews? <laughs> and Marx wrote this very influential "On the Jewish Question," and and it's a fascinating essay. I encourage people to read it. it you can go to karlmarx.org. And it's available there uh, to read for free. And um, he, he in this essay, identifies Jews with two things that we view as virtues, but the rest of the world views as vices. He identified them with selfishness and with capitalism. Mm. Jews were selfish. They were the epitome of selfishness. They were about succeeding and making money and, uh, and being capitalist. And he said... It, Jews, Jews fuel capitalism. They're behind capitalism. They are engaged in capitalism. They indeed have taught the Christian world to be capitalist. And that is their great sin. They are exploiters. They do nothing. As we know, the left thinks that financiers and capitalists are paper shufflers. They don't have a productive function. Jews have been moneylenders from beginnings of Christianity. So uh, for a variety of reasons, and therefore they are obviously engaged in sinful activities both based, both based on Christianity and on Marxism. 
So he made this association in people's mind with Jews and self-interest, which fits into the whole altruism discussion we had before. And he made the association of Jews with capitalism, which you still get today. Jewish bankers, Jews still going to finance quite a bit. They, they, they run a lot of our hedge funds and our banks and so on. So they're an easy target for those who hold that Marxist remnant. But he goes on and on. It's a long essay describing how basically the Jews have destroyed Christianity. And he says the problem with, with the Christian world today is that it's become Jewish. That is, the Jews have polluted it. And what does it mean that it's become Jewish? It's become capitalist and self-interested. Yeah, I guess he hated the fact that the proletariat would become bourgeois because of the bourgeoisie values, and then they became satisfied and happy. And you can't have revolutions when people are satisfied and happy, for Christ's sakes. Absolutely. But, but what do we do, your, your own? Because the the culture is dominated by the left. It's dominated by and and but when I say culture, I'm talking about all of our information outlets are dominated by it. And to me, that's sort of like the brain of the culture. If you, the information that you're receiving is saying a certain thing, it's it's going to dictate how you act. And I see a lot, a growing amount of an unprecedented amount of anti-Semitism in America. I mean, at least in my lifetime, because of what the left is doing, because of their dominance in the culture. How can we how can we fight it and resist it? Well, the only way to resist it is to speak up against it. I mean, and, and we need to be vocal and we need to be active. And, and the thing that will promote its success is silence. And too many good people are silent. I mean, one of the good things, one of the only good things to come out of the last few months has been the, the waking up, if you will, of, of certain funders of some of our top universities where they suddenly realize what's going on at the universities. Now, this has been going on at the universities for at least a decade, really, for three or four decades. Yeah. But they haven't noticed that it hasn't affected them. But many of them are Jewish, it turns out. But even the ones who are not Jewish are suddenly being slapped in the face with it. And their values are being challenged. And they've woken up to it. And after years and years and years of silence, decades of silence where you know, maybe they felt a little embarrassed by being successful and rich. Maybe maybe they just didn't want to get into it. Maybe they didn't view it as important. And at the same time, writing hundreds of millions of dollars of checks, billions of dollars of checks to the top institutions in our country, it seems like they've woken up. Uh, it seems like there's a certain energy there and they're not going to write those checks, at least for now, and that they're going to challenge some of these institutions to change. I don't know how successful they can be because maybe it's too late for those institutions like like a Harvard. Um, and, and Harvard might be too late. They've got too much money in an endowment somewhere. They don't need new money coming in. But maybe other universities are going to pay attention and, and, and start changing their way. So the first thing is, I, I've said this for decades now, but if you want to help change the world for the better, stop giving money to alma mater as, as a number one. You don't feed the enemy. You don't support the enemy. If you want to give money to your alma mater, give it to like an engineering program or a particular science program, you know, is good because even there they've been infected. And then uh, we need to fight the ideas. And but more importantly, what we need is to fight their ideas with our own positive ideas. That is, we need to argue for a positive philosophy, for philosophy to replace the existing philosophy. And, and that means we need to reject egalitarianism, 
in favor of egoism, meaning reject altruism in favor of rational long-term egoism, reject the moral subjectivism with a, a, a theory of moral certainty, of, of moral absolutism, reject their ideas around emotionalism with reason. And maybe that's the most important thing we can do is fight for reason because all of these movements and the whole idea of anti-Semitism cannot exist in a world of reason, cannot exist in the world of thinking individuals. They rely on the fact that people don't think for themselves. And then when it comes to how do we understand the world with news and stuff like this, sadly, you just have to do the work. Too many people grab onto whatever the news is, whether it's news they're receiving on Twitter, whether it's news they're receiving in the mainstream media or whatever, and they grab onto it as the truth. And the reality is today that you just have to do the work. You have to read multiple news sources. You have to engage with a number of different perspectives. And sometimes you have to go to original sources. I, I try if somebody says, I don't know, uh, Biden said X, Y, Z or Trump said X, Y, Z. I, I like to go and find the video and actually hear them say it because I don't trust these journalists. I've seen too often where they misinterpret and 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 rewrite what people are saying. And and it, it takes a lot of work. And I can understand completely some people who say, you know what? It's just not worth it. I'm just not going to listen to the news. I'm just not going to engage with the culture at that level. I'm just going to live my life, put my head down, make the best life that I can. I can't control the news anyway. Why get? Why struggle with it? And and I get that. It's sad because it means people are, are withdrawing and they're not engaged as much in the fight. But I completely understand them doing so. Um, I agree. There's a there's a super chat question I want to get here because I think it's it's interesting. But first, I want to give a shout out to Jonathan Honig, uh, Bonnie Bertrand. Mary Aline and Jason, thank you for, so much for your contributions. Mary Aline, a member of, for 21 months, asks this, or she says this, not an ask. Maybe the new left is decaying instead of maturing. Thanks for the analysis. And that seems to fit with the dim hypothesis. I mean, what what, what do you think of that? Well, it depends. I, mean, I think what she means is that the, the decay is their progress, if you will, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's that's what it means. But yeah, I, 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 I'm a supporter of the dim hypothesis to the extent that I think I understand it. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a complex theory and it's complex to apply. So I, I you know, I, I don't know if Leonard Peikoff would agree with my analysis of it. But yeah, I, I do think we're living through the dim hypothesis. I, I, I do think that what we're seeing today with the this new left uh, dominating our cultural and educational institution is ultimately a, a move towards a culture of disintegration, a culture of infighting, a culture of, of, of eating each other, intersectionality, which basically rates people morally, rates people based on how oppressed they are by your individual characteristics. And, and so you could be oppressed in one respect, but not in another. So you're kind of in a middle ground. But the real the real saints, if you will, are the people oppressed in every dimension of life. I guess they the color of their skin, their sexuality, their gender, in every aspect, they have to be. That, that is a completely bankrupt, ridiculous, completely disintegrated system. It puts everybody against everybody. And I don't think you can build a lasting political system around that because it's, it's just mayhem and destruction. And people need 
a certain sense of stability. They need integration. Epistemologically, they need an explanation for what's going on in the world. And I, I believe that that the whole modern left can't explain anything because it's completely in flux. It's constantly moving. There's no there's no basis on which to integrate, partially because they've rejected all reasoning and thinking. I think the only people who can present such an integration is are people who either integrate around the flag or integrate around uh, religion or who have turned environmentalism into religion and try to integrate around that. Although even there, I think it's ultimately disintegrated. But the ideal would be if you if you could find a, a, a political candidate who was charismatic, super religious, super nationalistic, and super environmental, right? Who really, really loved nature and wanted. I mean, I, that's a winning combination. I just don't see how anybody could could defeat that. Uh, sadly, and and that's the what what uh, you know uh, Leonard Peikoff in Dim Hypothesis called the uh, uh, M two. A, an ultimate misintegration around a false idea, but that provides people with some stability and understanding and integration and explanation of the world. It's wrong and it would be a disaster and we would be in awful shape, but I think that's where we're heading because it, it, the disintegration is not stable. And we, what Leonard called the eyes, the integrators around reason, around reality, are just not strong enough right now. We're not. We don't have the numbers, but uh, we don't need big numbers really to change the world. I think many movements uh, throughout history have shown us that. I want to just say, Robert Nasir, uh, thank him for five dollars. Engaging in politics in twenty twenty four is like sitting on the couch with a bowl of stale chips to watch a football game in which you despise both teams. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, <laughs> own. we have to go in a minute. I just want to say a few things here really quickly. Upcoming show, 6 p.m. UK time, The Reality Show, extra on why Israel is morally superior. Um, I also want to mention your talk. You did a talk on anti-capitalism and anti-Semitism. Um, there should be a link in the chat to that that you should see. And please tell us where people who, if, if anybody on this channel is not familiar with their, their your work, they should be. Where can they find you? Yeah, find me on, on YouTube, uh, Yaron Brook Show, or just Yaron Brook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, again, Yaron Brook. And, uh, uh, you know, you can always uh, just Google my name and you'll get flooded with stuff. I, I've done a couple of talks on, on anti-Semitism in the left. Uh, you can find them. If they're not on the chat, you can just Google my name and anti-Semitism and they will pop up. Well, you're on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a while since I've seen you, Always. but your Absolutely. your show sustains me, and I hope Thank it you. sustains other people out there. It needs to be much, much bigger. Folks, join us on the reality show, and it should be happening right now. Until then, remember to always check your premises. Peace. Great to see you, Mark. Great to see you.